0: Hi there and welcome to episode 28 of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast. My name is Greg Lindberg, your host here with you. Here on episode 28, we are speaking about blind skiing, uh, which we also did on episode 27, the last episode, which was on backcountry skiing, but uh, this episode is going to be focusing on cross-country skiing, and we are diving into Ski for Light, which is an organization based here in the U.S. So that's been around for several decades now and uh, puts on some amazing programs and opportunities to get blind and visually impaired uh, skiers into cross-country skiing. So let's uh, put on the skis and uh, dive right on in to episode 28. (laughs) All right, so my guest on this episode of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast is a gentleman by the name of Tim McCorkle, and Tim is the president of Ski for Light Incorporated. Tim, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Greg. I'm glad to be here.
0: Absolutely. I've uh, been aware of Ski for Light uh, for a while now and really uh, anxious to get into just, you know, the history of the organization. And I know you guys have a virtual event coming up, so we'll certainly speak about that as well.
1: Excellent. Look forward to talking about uh, both and uh, the the sport of cross-country skiing, which is the Tie that binds our organization
0: together. Absolutely, yep. And hey, this is December when we're recording this. uh, Pretty much right uh, when winter is officially starting, so it's a good time for this conversation. Uh,
1: yes, sir. First day of winter today.
0: That's right. Yep. All right. So first off, Tim, uh, just introduce yourself. Just give us kind of a bio about you know your your formative years, where you're from originally, and just who who you are for our audience.
1: I was born and raised in uh, Juneau, Alaska, which is in the southeast part of Alaska, and that's where I learned to ski, mostly downhill when I was younger. But also, I think uh, living in the north, you either like being out in the cold or you don't, and I was one that liked it. And there's always something magical about being out in the wintertime and on snow. So I like downhill and I like cross-country skiing and sledding. So I did all those sports when I was a. Uh, I learned downhill skiing when I started when I was in third grade and then um, pretty much did mostly downhill skiing up until my early 30s when I I ended up losing all my useful vision. Uh, I have retinitis pigmentosa so which it was I guess I was never had perfect vision but as a younger person I was able to do most activities although with uh, limited peripheral vision and then not a whole lot of night vision. so there are a lot of little accidents along the way as far as trying to be active and, and, and get game skills as a, in sports. But um, one of the things was when I learned to ski, I uh, just the, the magic of, of, of sliding down the hill and then learning kind of how to control gravity and kind of how to control my body and then also doing it well when I couldn't necessarily see all that well. It was, a, it was a great challenge for me, especially in my teenage years, just to get better at skiing and boy was I glad to do it because when I picked up skiing again in my late 30s, actually in my 40s, all the mess, the muscle memory was still there so it was just a matter of getting back in shape. I went to school in, in, the, in the University of Colorado and then also I now live at, uh, in Seattle, Washington where I got my graduate degree from the University of Washington. And is, I've been in Seattle for about 20, 30, 30 years now. It'll be 30 years this fall. And this is where I spent the most of my professional career. And then it it's also where I, I lost all my vision. So I've been blind for about, totally blind for about 10 years now.
0: Gotcha, I see. And I know you mentioned in terms of education, what, uh, what did you study as far as your undergrad and your graduate studies?
1: My background is in, uh, I got a, Finance and a, a real estate degree as an undergraduate, and then I went on to study finance again at, in my MBA program, and um, did some uh, accounting also in the in the graduate program. And I've worked mainly in the private sector and smaller startup companies. Also, have spent some time uh, in the early part of my career at the State of Alaska, and um, hmm. had a pretty variety, varied career, and it, it's come helped me a lot as I, as I started helping out with ski for light and been a member of the board for eight years now and um which is another great thing about our organization we're all volunteer and if somebody has the time and the inclination we'll find a way to take to put them to use
0: right right very cool and then uh, just going back to your visual impairment i know you mentioned rp and I'm curious, just, you know, take me back to that time. I guess it was, you said, in your 30s when you actually started losing vision.
1: Well, I was first diagnosed with RP when I, when I was third grade, so pretty young. Oh, wow. Um, all I really knew is I couldn't, at that point in time, is that I could not see at night very well definitely not like my friends so I was always tripping over things <laughs> or when we would even go hiking in the woods which there are a lot of woods in southeast Alaska I was always stumbling over things whereas my friends weren't hmm. so the, the limitations of, of my RP were subtle you know I could take my way through a lot of activities when, in, when I was in my um, teenage and My twenties, but I did. I was able to drive up until into my thirties, but uh, I gave up driving at night when I was twenty. So it was an incremental loss, and then I started giving up a lot of the sports I really loved in my late twenties and thirties. So once I had a crash on a bike that I knew was due to my lack of vision, I quit riding my bicycle. I quit playing the, the the ball sports like softball and basketball because. I could no longer see the ball or I was running into people so, you know, so frequently that it it was frustrating for me and everybody involved. And then eventually the, the last sport I gave, well, I gave up skiing when I was in my early thirties. And the reason I did that is, as I said, I was mostly downhill skiing then. And I realized that not only did, could I not see the people around me, they couldn't. They weren't aware that I couldn't. Couldn't see them either, and so I was doubly dangerous. Hmm. And I just, I, I couldn't really. The strain of knowing that if I had a crash, it was more than likely would have been my fault, and I, I just didn't want to end up. It, it's bad enough that I hurt myself. I just didn't want to hurt anybody else. So I just, I gave up the sport.
0: Gotcha. I see, and I'm sure that was a tough decision, having to to kind of stop doing things that you had done for a while.
1: It was very tough, and and to tell you the truth, I wasn't very good at asking for help or or reaching out, you know, knowing what I know now. I probably could have found other ways around, maybe not doing the same sports that I liked then, but doing other sports. But in my mindset, at that point in my life, was like, if I can't do this sport, then I can't do it. I won't do it. Um, And it took me the process of... uh, Really losing my sight of actually going blind to the point, you know, I couldn't, I could no longer see my face or read a book or watch TV and then having to learn the skills of being a blind person and realize that this is the rest of your life. You have a couple of choices, and one is to do nothing and complain, you know. or another is to do nothing and not complain, or other, you know, another thing is find out what you can do. And um, I made. Luckily, I made that that latter choice, and one of the first things, but along that path, was uh, my my father died in 2011, and during that summer, I was feeling sorry for myself, and and because I you know, I missed my with my dad, and but he he believed in me all the way through. I just not sure was never quite sure how to put his belief into my actions. But then during the, the summer after he passed away, I, I started thinking that he, he would be really mad at me if I gave up my dreams along with his dreams for me. So hmm. I started looking around for uh, activities I could do as a blind person. And one day I, I, I just Googled on cross country skiing and, and blind. And the first thing that came up was this organi- organization called ski for light. And I had, as I said, I had cross country skied in my younger years, but it wasn't the primary type of skiing that I I did. Sure. But the prospect of getting out on snow again and getting out of the city and getting into the mountains, you know, like, well, I think I can still ski, but I'll never know if I don't try. You know, there's no adventure. If you can't get out, get beyond your front door. And so I forced myself to go to that first event in 2012. And, um, it was a magic, is a is a a, a life changing experience for me just to once again to feel that I was capable on snow and capable of skiing, and also was able to meet a bunch of other like minded people, blind and sighted that really wanted to experience life, wanted to share their love, share the mountains, share the snow, share skiing, and share their experience with other people, which was. Uh, it did change
0: the course of my life. Wow. That's pretty powerful. And I appreciate that insight. Just, you know, it sounds like once you discovered and, and kind of stumbled upon ski for light and an organization like this, just knowing that something out there existed like that and then actually getting that experience, you know, to go to the event and it must've just given you such a different mindset and
1: attitude. Oh, without, without a doubt. Um, I, I, I I still marvel at the end of every ski season how much better I am at navigating hmm. just in the city with my cane, how much, how how better my balance is, my spatial awareness. Because yeah, I just think, you know, we got to you know, our brain and our body needs that exercise. It needs to have the puzzle of how to stay in balance as you're moving under uncertain terrain. And the more you challenge it, the more the skills are built up. And then, it, then a great thing about our body, humans, is that we expand that, not that, that those abilities into other areas. And so, it's for me that's one of the beauties of the sport. You know, especially the way we do cross country skiing is we ski on groomed trails, and then there are tracks cut into those trails. But each, the blind person is in one set of tracks, and the, the guide is in another. So really, we're skiing independent of each other except for the guide is beside or in front or behind, but not very far usually, pretty within hearing distance. and So they're narrating the trail ahead of me, but the rest of it is up to me to pay attention to them and to decipher what they're telling, telling me with what I, my, I'm feeling with my skis as far as the terrain, whether we're going up or down in a corner, what the snow conditions are like. And I just think that puzzle... understanding the communication, and then then also working out what is happening that I can't see, but I'm getting the information, just I need to process it and then react to it. And that just applies, I think, so much in life.
0: Exactly. No doubt. Very interesting. And uh, if you could just speak a little more, you know, a little more in depth about what type of information, what specifically are these guides communicating to the blind skier?
1: It's usually a, a pretty much a running conversation. Either telling you when we we're first starting out, with, especially with a new guide, there's a lot of communication, more so from the guide to the skier rather than two-way. But the guide is usually getting us oriented to the to the tracks because one the, for me, the, when I first start out, the very act of trying to get my bow skis into the into the tracks without spending a minute and a half fumbling around because you can be standing right on top of the tracks which are cut in the snow but if you're not really your skis aren't oriented in the same direction as the track you may never well you'll find them but it can take a long time Hmm. so they're they're working to get you positioned so you can get your skis into the track and then as you're skiing along they'll be calling out the trail ahead so they'll if if you're going at a quick pace they'll be telling you you know, how, what's immediately ahead of you, whether the, you're going into a left-hand turn or a right-hand turn. Sometimes if you, they'll tell you the, the sharpness of the turn, it, or if it's just a gentle one, you know, just call it like, okay, you have a sweeping right-hand turn here. Or it'd be like, okay, you're going into a hairpin or a 180, so you need to be prepared for a, little, a, a, a different type of technique to go through a, a corner like that. The downhills are the downhills are probably the biggest challenge because both skier and guide are trying to control their ski, their speed, and then you also need to know what's happening as you're navigating down the hill. And then a lot of the trails will have a turn somewhere in the middle or somewhere in the bottom. Maybe not usually not a, super, a sharp turn, but you're going to have a, a direction change, and you need to I need to make sure I uh, I know that's coming up and start shifting the weight so I can arc through the corner rather than having to come to a stop or completely slow down and, and, and step through a turn. And then a lot of times it's, it's to help when there are people on the trail with you, You know, we're now we're communicating to move around the people, other fellow skiers so you're not running into them or creating traffic jams. Hmm. And then on, unlike big climbs, it's usually a lot of encouragement. It's like, okay, Halfway up, three-quarters of the way up, because one of the things on a on a long ascent or a long climb, if you don't know how long it is, it can feel like you're just climbing forever, and you, like the stairway to heaven. You just don't know where you're going to end. So right. it's good to have, like, okay, we're halfway up, and then you can dose, your, start you know, channeling how much energy you're going to expend to get over the top.
0: I see very interesting so they are pretty in-depth and not only kind of communicate the environment But just like you said even just the words of encouragement and a progress kind of status update
1: Yes, it's very for my you know, it's very much a team effort um And one thing I love about it is As I've gotten better at skiing, you know, the better I ski the less work the guide has to do and that means that we get to have more fun, so they they get confident in my ability to handle more challenging terrain so they don't have to stress out stress out about telling me about every little nuance because they know what I can handle. But that means they can look farther ahead or we can go a little bit faster or ski on more challenging terrain, which is, you know, some guys don't really want to be on challenging terrain, but others do. You know, a lot of our guys are really good skiers and, um... They like to open it up every now and then too. So and I enjoy the, the challenge of skiing with with those type of guys. And then you know knowing that they get a sense that they're really tuned into what we are doing as a team. Because the goal is for us to both you know end the day with you know no injuries and having a good time. My goal is you know to make sure that I appreciate what they're giving to me, and hopefully they can enjoy the outing or the experience at the end of the day
0: exactly yeah and i would imagine these guides do have some kind of training or they you know just in terms of what they have to do to guide someone just learning how much they have to describe or what has to be described uh, if you could talk about kind of like the the background of some of the guides
1: yeah so what, every guide that comes to one of our the ski international we have the the organize or our organization has a week-long event every year and we call it the international event because we do have people come from all the world to attend it and guides that the first time, the first two years that a guy comes to one of our international events, we provide two days. We provide a day of on snow training and that's where they work. They'll split up into teams of fellow new guides, but they'll each team will ski with a couple of experienced guide skier tandem so they'll they'll be a training a training team that will lead a group of the new new guides and they'll work them through the the, you know, the techniques of guiding a blind skier they'll also give them some introductory techniques on just how to do a side how do some sided guiding techniques when you're not on the snow so you can you know, a lot of our guides when they first start they don't have a lot of experience around blind people, and so that's good to just let them know, here are some the basics of doing side of guiding technique off snow. But then once they get on snow, they get some intensive training from experienced skiers and guide on here's the technique to help uh, skiers learn how to ski because our guides not only, we call them instructor guides because they also will can do a lot of actually teaching of, of skiing technique to new hmm. skiers um, at our international events we do have quite a number of skiers skiers that have never been skiing or have skied very little so we take that seriously that this is our one of our missions is to teach skiing to blind people and so the the guides are given instruction on how to work with a blind skier how to Translate what they know about skiing or what they know about teaching skiing so that rather than saying You know, maybe in their past they, they've shown or demonstrated visually how a technique is done. Well now they have to figure out how to Translate what happens visually into words that uh, a blind skier can visualize and put into practice and then that's where our, our experience uh, guide training pairs they can help them with some of that terminology explaining what has worked successfully in the past. And then at our events we try to pair uh, new guides up with experienced skiers because that way they They can practice their guiding technique with somebody who has already ex- has experienced being guided and that can help the guide come up to speed as a guide quicker and they can learn from somebody who has skied quite a bit and, and give them feedback on what information they need a blind person needs to know and when to make it the most successful skiing
0: outing mean, for the pair of them gotcha very cool so there is quite a formal process it sounds like in place to to match up like you said the guide with the skier and and just the backgrounds of both individuals and how that all comes together
1: yes we uh, um, normally at one of our events we have somewhere around 225 240 total, so we would probably hmm. have somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 to 110 blind or mobility-impaired skiers, and then another 110 to 115 guides, and so wow. we do have a matching process that goes on the, the day before the events start, and yeah, we, based on the knowledge, our knowledge, the organizing committee's knowledge of the skiers and the guides, we do try to make the best match we can, and some of them work great, and some of them, well, we can. we didn't quite make the mark but yes we do take those matchings seriously and and, you know we definitely don't want to just make it seem like it's haphazard we really try to gauge temperaments and abilities and goals for the week so that we can have the highest likelihood that the most number of people enjoy the, the, the experience
0: sure that's awesome in terms of the international event, uh, the week-long event that we've talked about, uh, from what I understand, that is held in, in different places that varies you know, year to year. And I'm curious, how do you guys identify locations for that event and just kind of what goes into that, that process?
1: This would have been our 46th annual event. It is a week-long. And we do try to move it around throughout the country just to give our participants a variety of experiences, not only in terms of skiing but also and meeting different you know parts of enjoy learning about different parts of our country and then also you know give it the different regions the, the, the participants in the, their home region a chance to either go beyond their home where they ski normally or to enjoy being near home and maybe have it less costly or more convenient for for them but what we when we're looking for we do have a site selection part process and we try to look out a couple couple years in advance when we're identifying and then uh working to stage an event and a couple things we look at is you know we want to have a high probability of, of snow which <laughs> these days is it's more it's not as reliable these days unfortunately but we do take you know the the snow coverage or the annual snow fall into mount into account, and the other thing we also look at we do have a pretty big group. Normally we bring somewhere between two hundred and fifty and two hundred and seventy five people, and we we like to stay if possible all in one event hotel so that we're we do have a vibrant social program that takes place when we're not skiing so. We want to have uh, a staging area so where we can all eat, to, we eat group meals at breakfast and dinner, and then we have uh, evening programs and uh, special interest sessions in the afternoon to bridge the time between skiing and dinner. So that, that's one of the constraining factors is, is can we find a big enough event hotel that is within the price range of our participants in an area that has re- reliable snow.
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely a lot of factors you have to account for, obviously.
1: Yeah.
0: As far as the social connections, I know, for example, I played play baseball, I've tried some other sports, and uh, for me, I can definitely say, you know, just connecting with other people who are blind and visually impaired, you know, from all over the world is, uh, you know, really exciting. And if you could just speak about whether it's from your personal experience or... Just connections that you've kind of witnessed among other skiers, and and how the social aspect of these events, you know, really are a positive thing.
1: Oh yeah, I, I one you know, I think a really fantastic ex- part about ski for light is we're virtually we're half blind people and half sighted, and the sighted people are there because they want to share what they do with with blind people, but then pretty soon you come to realize it's not about being you know our event is not it, it there are blind people there but we don't focus on that blindness all that much it's really about the second our model is skiing sharing learning and we really after a while it really is about the sharing and learning we we spend a lot of time together and it's usually the decided and the blind folks are mixing with each other i have you know, friends that I've met in the ten years that I've been in um, ski for life that I communicate with through throughout the year. Uh, I, through ski for life, I ended up running a half marathon with a guide two years ago. In, oh, wow. uh, in twenty nineteen, I completed the Burke Biner, which is a fifty five kilometer ski race in Wisconsin with a with the help of another guide that I met through through ski for life. Um, I have a friend here that lives in Washington State and he he's a, he's a guide, and he either will be, he drives, he likes to go out on the road and take road trips, but he'll stop along the way to meet people that he's he's met at, at Ski for Light. And that's very common. Um, it's a very, the people that that connect at Ski for Light really get a lot out of the community aspects of it. They're very, they look forward to the event every year, but they don't. They also look forward to staying in touch with the people they have met throughout the year. And I think you know, my experience of going blind is that it's pretty easy to feel the distance from people, especially I. You know, as I said, I lost my sight over time, and as I found it harder and harder to see people, I felt more and more invisible. And having an organization like Ski for Light you know, I cannot see, but I know I'm not invisible anymore. And I, I, I know a lot of other people out of our organization feel the same way.
0: For sure. That's a great, uh, great way to put that. As far as the demographics of the blind and visually impaired skiers, and I also understand you guys, uh, you know, also have skiers with other physical disabilities as well. If you could just speak about, you know, the, the demographics, what kind of age range are we talking and I think you alluded to the fact earlier that there are, you know, some individuals that really have zero skiing background or experience that, that come to these events, but yet, you know, are very much welcomed and get a lot out of it as well.
1: Well, let's see, at our our event in 2020, the oldest blind skier was 97 years old, and the youngest was 26. So wow. We, <laughs> there's a broad range. Um hmm. As for skiers, our average age, we average in, you know, in our 50s. Um, the guides are a little bit older, I think, because we, it is a week-long event. You, you have to have the time away from work or be retired. You don't have to, but it helps to have the time to commit to a week-long event. Um, we do usually have between 6 and 10 mobility-impaired skiers each year, so those uh, participants are usually Sid skiers. Uh, and yeah uh, I would say skill level of the of the participants is you know we're advanced beginner intermediate there's some of us that are pretty really skilled skiers but the goal is not to be racers I like I enjoy r- the racing but that's not my goal for the organization my goal for the organization is to get as many people to participate in experiences as possible and if they like it to come on in if it's not for them I understand that but hopefully they'll have a good time and will have had a, a chance a chance to experience something they may not have had a chance to do in the past and uh, take some learning or growth out of out of the, the time they committed
0: right very interesting If you could just speak a little about the history of Ski for Light, the organization, I know I was reading that, uh, I guess it was kind of born out of an idea, uh, in Norway back in the fifties originally,
1: right? That is correct. Um, a a blind musician named Erling Stordahl in the fifties, he knew that, that skiing was his national sport. And he, he wondered why blind people couldn't participate in it. And, um, so he thought to find a way to get to uh, find people to ski and and one of the benefit uh, aspects that developed out of that was the, the skiing in tracks on groomed trails so that way you know our, our skis are the, the the tracks that your skis fit in to you know pretty much guide you on your way forward you have to stay in them but that's a, even nowadays when you on the the national or the international skiing You know, they race in tracks when they're classic skiing, so Hmm. um, he was very ahead of his time there. But he, uh, through connections that he had with the national government, they started an event called the Ritterin, which is short for the Knights Race, and that's been going on since 1964 in in Norway. And in the early 70s, some uh, Norwegian uh, immigrants to the United States decided that they wanted to bring that event and the enthusiasm of that activity to the United States and then, uh, so we held our first event in 1975 and have been having one ever since. Wow. And every year we send a uh, the, the Ski for Light organization we send a, a group of uh, two usually two skiers and two guides over to take part in the, the event in Norway and I was lucky enough to go over there in 2014 and it was just uh, a remarkable experience just that and the Norwegian event is probably twice the size of ours, so there's huh. probably yeah, there might even be might even be more than that. But it's just uh, it was a celebration of skiing. And a celebration of, of people being blind doing uh, coming from all you know it wasn't it was all over Europe and then Canada and the United States and is it, uh, it was just a, a wonderful experience and then to have that common activity of once you're on snow and skiing I, I ended up having a Norwegian guide and I don't speak. Norwegian and she spoke pretty decent enough English, but we didn't have to talk much. We just skied together and I could understand what she needed me to do. And she was able to have confidence in me that we had some of my best days of skiing at that point, just, uh, on snow, sharing a, a great sport in a lovely country. And, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad they started in Norway in 64. And I'm glad we took it up in 75 because, uh, as I said earlier, it it's a, it has a capacity to change lives.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, COVID-19 has uh, you know impacted our world and, and events, you know, especially in-person events in so many ways, and uh, you know probably will continue to do to do so in 2021 at least for some time. And I understand that Ski for Light uh, has moved the annual event uh, virtually for 2021, and if you could just talk about, you know, the the decisions behind that, uh, you know, the discussions and how that was decided upon, and and just what that event is going to look like.
1: Yes. Um, We were originally scheduled to have our event um, the last week of January at Snow Mountain Ranch in Colorado, but... Um, early back in uh, May and June of this year, when it it looked, it became apparent that this was going to be a longer term problem with COVID than rather than a short term. Uh, our board of directors sought some guidelines from the, the World Health Organization, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committees, and then also did research with the Colorado Department of Public Health. And we, we created, you know, distilled the documents that, the best information that we could find. We consulted, we have a number of, of medical doctors who are guides in our organization. And so we hmm. consulted with them to get their insights and best recommendations. And then we took the best information and guidelines that we could find, analyzed our knowledge of what our event would be entails it's a very we are constantly in close proximity with he, each other by the very nature of of, of how of skiing where the guide and skier are pretty are, are, are in close contact when we're during off hours there's a lot of it mingling either at special interest sessions or in dances or at dinner time our demographic tends to be a little bit older and Especially, and then we have some of our blind participants and some of our guys having some of the other co contributing factors that make them made it dangerous for their health. And we made the decision that we didn't think we could safely hold the event, and we made decided that we didn't want to go away for a year. Our community, you know, it was important to our board that we have some type of event to abridge to bridge one winter to the next and so that's why we decided on having our virtual event which will be start on the 27th of January and go uh, through the 30th of January and it will have some similar features of our normal event but obviously we won't be in person and we won't be out on snow skiing together.
0: Right, very Interesting. And uh, if you could just maybe elaborate a little more on, you know, the different sessions, what uh, kind of topics, what things are going to be discussed and presented
1: uh, during the event. We're based on skiing. So one of you know, we're, the goal is to be active, to encourage our community, our members to be active in their lives, even if they're not going to be at an event. So each of the days that... Uh, we ha- during our virtual event, we're going to have yoga or stretching sessions. On uh, we're going to be ho- using the Zoom platform, so we'll be having in the mornings. We'll be having some uh, wake up sessions as far as yoga or stretching or maybe some Pilates, and in the afternoons we'll have a, a bit more. Uh, also on on um, Zoom, we'll have some sessions that are mu- a little bit more vigorous. In uh, one session that we're planning, we'll be f- focusing on how to. Use like a, say a resistance band or a sport cord to work on your ski uh, cross country skiing technique. Hmm. Then we will have special interest sessions, which will be group meetings over the internet, and a couple of one. One will be about giving people who haven't guided a chance to ask questions about what it's like to guide a blind person. So we'll have a panel of experienced. Ski for Light guides. that will be doing a presentation, but they'll also be taking questions from the from the assembled community on the Zoom meeting. We'll have a similar session for about uh, what it's like to be a blind skier. So maybe folks that are have heard about Ski for Light or heard about cross country skiing for a blind person, but they. Have never had, a, you know, never really known who to ask or where to get more information. So we look to give them an opportunity to ask, learn more, and ask questions. Um, we'll have some sessions about the Norwegian event. We do have it. Do retain a strong connection to uh, Norway, and especially through the Sons of Norway or. Uh, International organization, which has been uh, a partner with us for since the inception. So it's important that we, you know, help other help folks know that this, you know, our organization it does it doesn't exist in a vacuum. There are a lot of people that work to make our organization successful, and the sons of Norway and the Norwegians have been instrumental in that. And we'll have a, I believe we're going to have a show. On how to bake on baking some sourdough bread, so uh, going to do that will <laughs> <Nice>. be interesting. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then one of our um, members participated in the uh, Ironman Louisville, the Louisville Ironman, a few years ago. So he's going to give uh, a presentation on his experience of preparing for that. Huh. Um, our goal with this event is to try to give everybody participating a flavor of what a ski for light is, even if we can't ski. So we're going to make it, have it unique and we're going to give a little of our history. We're going to have some exercise involved. We're going to encourage all the per, all participants to uh, set some exercise goals for the week, whatever you know, method they want to choose, log those uh, results and, and we'll give them shout outs for whatever they do achieve through the week. Cause, Again, it's 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 not is the participation is the critical thing. I think in you know in in life in general, you know, it's as I said before, we can sit at home and do nothing, but that uh, that gets pretty dull. So it's get doing something, participating a little bit is better than nothing at all, and we'll we'll recognize that.
0: Right, very well said, and uh, it's it's awesome that you guys you know can still put on an event like this and allow everyone to connect you know in spite of not being able to do so in person um so i'm definitely personally excited about this event i did register and uh, really look forward to the information as someone hopefully someday can actually attend in person and get uh, get those skis on oh absolutely I, I
1: think you know there's a good chance we get anybody to attend they're gonna we can they're gonna have a good time uh-huh. And then they might just find a sport that uh, that resonates with them, and then then it can be you know for a lifetime thing. And then again, for me, it has led me far beyond what I ever imagined. I mean, it was wonderful to be able to ski again, but it's even more wonderful to be participating in life in a fuller way than I had been.
0: Absolutely, no question. Okay, to wrap up here, uh, if, if anyone is interested in learning more about this uh, virtual event uh, in January or just Ski for Light in general, how can they find out uh, more about everything?
1: Uh, they can go to uh, our website at www.sfl.org, and that's our primary social media method. But well, we also do have a Facebook presence and a Twitter handle, so, uh, so people like those social media
0: avenues we we do have a present there nice awesome and i'll certainly include uh, links to to the website to the two social media pages as well uh in the show notes for this episode thank you appreciate. It. sure thing all righty well uh, tim mccorkle again we've been chatting with uh who's the president of ski for light incorporated uh tim just really want to thank you for joining us here on ice free sports and appreciate the info and and uh just your insight on uh, adaptive skiing
1: well greg i appreciate your time and uh, thank you for reaching out to us and uh, hopefully us we'll meet in person and uh, get to share some <laughs> tracks and uh, but if not i appreciate what you're doing and, and your time you've given to me and our organization because um i looked at your some of your podcasts and those are pretty neat you interviewed some pretty fantastic fascinating people and i'm glad that uh, you thought we were one you wanted to include
0: Cool, awesome. I appreciate that. Alrighty, thanks so much.
1: All right, cool.
0: Be sure to follow the Eyes Free Sports podcast at facebook.com slash sports and on Twitter at eyesfree sports.